Have you ever seen one of those, um, I don't know what they're called, but they're like hidden pictures. Uh, you have to focus your eyes a certain way. And as you focus your eyes a certain way, there's a picture that emerges from the picture. Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, you have to stare at it. And it's like you got to zone in or zone out. I don't know what it is. But if your eyes are just focused just right, you see the picture that's there. Otherwise, on the surface, it just looks like random colors. There may be some kind of a pattern there, uh, but it just it looks like just a bunch of, of colors. Uh, and so when I was younger, my older sister, Jenny, brought home this poster. I don't even know how old we were, uh, but she had this poster, and it was like reds and oranges and whatever else. And so we stared at this thing forever trying to figure out what the picture was. And I don't know if you ever did this, but it was a poster. We had it on the wall, so you'd get up real close to it like this, and you'd stare at it, and you'd slowly walk back trying to keep your eyes, like, focused but unfocused. And then the picture would finally emerge. And so we did this forever until we finally saw what was there. And what was there was a side picture of what was supposed to be Jesus' face with the crown of thorns. And so you see it, and as soon as you say, I see it, your eyes shift and you lose the picture. And so it's, a, it's the picture, but there is, there's actually a picture inside the picture. Uh, but if your eyes are not adjusted correctly or adjusted or focused properly on it, you miss what the picture really is. It disappears. You don't see it. And in some way, if you allow that illustration to go, I think we find this with Jesus. People see Jesus doing different things. They hear Jesus say different things, but they don't quite understand who Jesus is. They don't quite understand the things that he is saying. He's painting a picture for them, but because their eyes are not adjusted properly, they miss what Jesus is saying, and they miss what Jesus is doing. And we find this in so many of Jesus' interactions. Find them with his interactions with the religious leaders, but also with the crowds. They're expecting the Messiah to be a certain way and do certain things. And Jesus doesn't do that. And they're confused. He says things that they're like, this is weird. I don't understand what you're talking about. And so they miss who Jesus is often and what he is actually saying. And so in John 5, if you were to summarize our section this morning, it's this. Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath and the religious leaders are furious with him. That's the summation. But there, what I want you to see is there's actually two groups of people here. There's one group who understands that they are sick and need help. They need healing. And there is another group who do not understand that they're sick, though they are sick. Therefore, they're not looking for healing. They're not looking for help. And so my question to us this morning is, where is your place? Where is our place in this story? Do we, do we know what group we fall into? Do we know that we are in need? Do we see that? Are we looking for help in places and areas where only Jesus can help us? You see, Jesus is back in Jerusalem. If you've been with us, he was in Jerusalem, then he went up to Galilee, and now he's back down in Jerusalem, and he goes to this pool called Bethsaida, which means the house of outpouring. And surrounded this pool were covered, basically large covered porches, there were five of them, that surrounded this pool. And there in, under these porches was a multitude of people. They were, they were diseased, they were sick, they were lame, they were blind. All kinds of different things are going on with these people. And they were sitting around and they were waiting for the waters to be stirred. Because what they believed is that certain times and certain seasons, an angel would come down into the pool, the angel would stir the waters, and when the angel stirred the waters, significant healing power would would be in the water and the ones that could get down there quick enough would be healed from their disease or their uh, lame or whatever it was it would heal them from those things 
And so there's this multitude of people who were placing their hope in the stirring of the water. But before we judge too quickly and write that off as superstition or write that off as just kind of a silly thing that people were doing, I would say that we're not all that altogether that different from those waiting for the water to be stirred. We often put our hopes in things that will satisfy, things that will heal, things that will save us, things other than Jesus. We trust in our portfolios. We trust in our positions. We trust in our performance. We look to our physical physique or our physical appearance to give us some sense of significance or some sense of identity. We look to other people's opinions and their approvals of us, and that's where we place our hope. So maybe we don't do the kinds of things that we see the multitude of people around this pool doing, but we aren't altogether different from them. And so my question this morning is, what is your Bethesda? If you will, what is your healing pool? What is, it, what is that thing that you're looking to that you're hoping would stir the waters for you? Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your children's performance or children's success. Maybe if you're in middle school or high school or college or whatever, maybe it's your grades or, or whatever athletic team that you're about and your athletic achievements. Maybe it's some other extracurricular thing that you're a part of, music or art or whatever it is. And so you look to these things to find significance and meaning and purpose. Maybe it's the group of friends that you're a part of or the group of friends you hope to be a part of. What is it? Where is it that you're looking Maybe it's your retirement plan or the things that you have or the success that you've built as a business person or being a a mother and, and just caring for your kids, whatever that is. What is it that you're looking to other than Jesus and his work for you to find your significance, to find your identity, to find your security, to find some sense of inner healing and meaning, to find your rest? The truth is, is that we're all sick. The truth is that we're all in need. And that only Jesus can provide and meet what we most desperately need. And so the three things I want us to consider from the text this morning is one, realize that you're sick. Realize that you're sick. Secondly, do you really want to be well? And third, will you find your rest in Jesus? Because only finding your rest in Jesus will we really find true healing. So let's look at the first one. Realize that you're sick. I love Jesus' interaction Uh, as you read through the Gospels, his interactions with the people, because you see him not only going to the religious leaders and the wealthy and the powerful, those who think that they're well, those who think that they have no need, but we see him interacting with the worst. We see him interacting with those who are most broken. We see him hanging out with the sickest of people. Kent Hughes, who is a pastor and he writes commentaries, this is how he paints this scenario. He says, What a pitiful crowd of broken humanity. It does not take much imagination to see those withered, wasted bodies, to smell the stench, to see the filth, to sense the pathos of old and new or old and young among the suffering of humanity. It had to be a terrible, distressing sight, except for one thing. Jesus was there. Jesus goes to the hospital and not to the health club. These people knew that they were sick. They were not ignorant of their disease and they were not ignorant of their need. Here's the point I'm trying to get at is that Jesus is not afraid to enter into our sickness. Jesus is not afraid to walk into the middle of our mess. And Jesus is not afraid to be among our brokenness. In fact, he looks for it. 
If you see him in the gospel, he's drawn to it. And we see this in our story that Jesus goes to the worst of the worst. Notice here that there's a multitude of people. The multitude of people are by, are by this pool and they're waiting to be healed. But who does Jesus go and find? He goes to this one guy. He goes to this guy that has been sitting there for 38 years. This man is physically broken. He's paralyzed and he's unable to move. But he's not just physically broken. He is spiritually sick. But he's not the only one in this story who is spiritually sick. The religious leaders are also broken. And yet they don't even realize it. In fact, I would say that the visible display of the physical sickness of the people at the pool is rivaled only by the uh, invisible display of the spiritual sickness of the religious leaders. Their religious behavior had blinded them to their spiritual brokenness. They were spiritually sick, and yet they didn't know it. They were spiritually blind, and they couldn't see it. They were spiritually paralyzed, and they couldn't feel it. And so I wonder, as I thought about that, could we be spiritually sick and not know it? Are we spiritual critics looking down on others that don't have the same standard as we do? Are we self-righteous putting our confidence in our good behavior and our good works? Are we spiritually bitter holding our grudges and refusing to forgive others? But you might say, Andy, I'm none of those things, so I must be spiritually well. And I would say, no, no, you're not. All of us are sick. And all of us are broken in so many different kinds of ways. In fact, Paul says in Romans chapter 3 that there is none righteous, not even one. And so the question is, do you realize that you're spiritually sick? Do you realize your own spiritual brokenness? This man had been paralyzed for 38 years. He knew that he was sick and he knew that he was physically broken, which leads to the second point. The question that Jesus asks, do you want to be healed? Notice this interaction here in verse 6 says and when jesus saw him lying there he knew that he had been there already for a long time and so he says to him do you want to be healed now on the surface that might seem like a silly question because there's just some questions that you don't ask people right you don't ask your wife as you're getting ready to go out are you really wearing that tonight you don't ask that question not a good question to ask you don't ask uh, you don't ask somebody who has a nice, healthy portion of food in front of them, are you really going to eat all of that? You don't say that. And you don't go up to somebody and ask, how far along are they? That is a bad question to ask. When I was in seminary in, uh, in Louisville, our pastor, we were part of a church that after the service, they'd invite uh, people down who were wanting to join the church and they would introduce them to the church and that kind of a thing. So the pastor's standing there and there's this young couple's uh, standing next to him and he's introducing them and he looks over and asks her how far along she is. She was not pregnant. Uh, and I could not sink low enough into my seat. He tried to uh, recover and it was getting worse and worse. There are just some questions that you just do not ask. And so when you go to the hospital, you don't ask people, do you want to get well? The answer to that's obvious. Of course they want to get well. You don't ask, do you want to be healed? So what is Jesus doing? Why is he asking this question? Because he's not ignorant and he's not socially inept. So why ask this question? 
You see, this man had this opportunity to get into the waters for 38 years, and he hasn't. Why has he not gotten into the water? What is the reason? And so Jesus, doing what he always does, he gets to the heart of the matter, and he asks this question, do you really want to be well? Do you really want to be healed? And I think that is a good question for us to consider as well. Because in many ways, we become so comfortable with our sin and comfortable with our brokenness that the idea of being set free from those is almost more frightening to us. And so we choose to remain in our sin. We choose to continue in our sickness and to accept our broken situation and to cope with our relationships and to learn just to make it work because we've become dependent upon those things. And this is how sin works. This is the deceitfulness of sin. We would rather uh, settle with sin, rather settle with our own brokenness and our internal sickness and our emotional wounds than to be set free from those things and truly be healed because the brokenness and the sin has become so comfortable to us that we don't know how we would live without those things. They almost become a crutch to us in a lot of ways. And so Jesus asked this man a question. And it's the same question he asks us. Do you really want to be well? Do you want it to change? Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be set free? Do you want to be made whole? And if the answer to that question is yes, then my follow-up question would be, what is it in your life that you need to surrender to Jesus? Not what people, but what is it in your heart that you truly need to surrender to Jesus? Ask yourself, do I really know what's going on inside my own heart and my mind? Do I really understand where I still need Jesus to bring about healing in my heart and in my life? Or am I, or am I ignorant of my need just like these religious leaders were? The longer I live, the more I understand how broken I really am. And the more aware I become of my own brokenness, the more aware I become of God's love for me. And to the extent that I understand His grace towards me, I'm enabled by His grace to be honest about my own brokenness and to be set free from those things in His love. The reality is that we're all broken. The reality is that we all still are wounded in various ways and the sin, there's sin in our life that we don't want to face. That's the reality for all of us. And so the question is, do you know that you're sick? Do you know this? Do you understand the wounds that Jesus needs to heal? Are you willing to face your own brokenness? Do you really want to be well? Do you want the bitterness that you have towards others to go away? Do you want the unforgiveness to end? Do you want the relationships to finally be reconciled? Do you want to be set free from this addiction of pleasing others? Do you want the lies that you believe, that you tell yourself, and that you tell others? Do you want those to come to an end? Do you want the enticing lust to no longer look as good anymore? Do you want the darkness to go away? Do you want to be healed? This is what Jesus is asking this man. But notice the man's response in verse 7. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. You notice he doesn't really answer Jesus' question. He kind of evades it and he kind, of, he kind of gives excuses or reasons as to why he hasn't been healed. And so when I ask you that question, do you want to be well, what comes to your mind? And the reason why I ask that follow-up question 
is because how we answer that question reveals a lot about what we believe about God, what we believe about ourselves and our own sin, our own brokenness, and what we believe about others. So what comes to your mind when I ask, do you want to be well? You see, this man plays a victim card in ways because he says, I don't have friends. I have no one to carry me down to the pool. Everyone else is better off. I can't get there fast enough. But notice this interaction as you move down through the text. Notice what happens when the religious leaders confront him after Jesus heals him. Verse 10, it says, So the Jews said to the man who, is, uh, who had been healed, It's the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered him, the man, notice he doesn't know that it's Jesus at this point. He says, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And then if you skip down to verse 14, after Jesus had found him in the temple, he said to him, see, you're well, sin no more so that nothing worse happens to you. And then notice how this man responds. Verse 15, he went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Now, Maybe this guy is trying to give praise to Jesus. Maybe he's trying to give a witness or a testimony to Jesus. But it seems to me that he's trying to shift the focus and running away from facing the authorities in terms of what he did or didn't do on the Sabbath. So what does he do? In verse 15, he goes back. As soon as he learns that it's Jesus that did it, he goes back to the authorities and he blames Jesus. He says, Jesus is the one that did this. It wasn't me. And then we see what happens in verse 16. It says, and this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And yet, I think we should show this man grace, because we're not altogether different from him. For 38 years, he has been sitting here, and maybe he just got to the point where he just gave up. He said, it's no use. It's never going to happen. And so let me ask you this question, where in your life do you play the victim Where have you decided just to give up? Have you ever thought or said, this doesn't, this never goes well for me? Have you ever thought or said, everybody is against me? There's, this is never going to work. It feels as if God has given up on me. This will never change. I will never change. This is just the way that it is. I'm done trying. Have you ever thought those words or said those things out loud? So let me ask again, do you want to get well? Do you want things to change? Or have you taken the posture of a victim, blaming others, having no hope, and saying, I'd rather just give up? It's just easier to give up. You see, Jesus can handle our worst. This man had been paralyzed for 38 years Jesus does not pick the easiest case. He goes to the hardest. He goes to the worst. Which means no matter how bad we think our situation is or how hopeless we think our case may be, Jesus can handle us. He can handle our situation. He can bring hope to the hopeless. He can bring healing to our wounds. He can reconcile relationships. He can change situations. You see, this man's physical brokenness isn't a big deal to Jesus. And neither is your sin. And neither is your sickness. And neither is your brokenness in terms of Jesus being able to bring reconciliation and bring healing. And notice what Jesus says to this man in verse 8 and 9. He says, get up. 
Take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and he walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. Jesus says to this man, get up. Take up your bed and walk. Take up that which you used to depend on and depend on me. Jesus is asking the same thing of us. Jesus is saying to you and to me, get up. Stop spiritually depending on someone or something else. Pick up your mat, whatever that is, and put the weight of your trust on me. Get up and walk. He's not saying here to fix yourself. He's not saying, come on, pick up yourself, get your act together, just work harder. Just have enough faith. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is, listen to me. He's saying, hear my word, trust in my power, believe what I tell you. Let me heal your wounds. Let me restore that which you think is broken. Get up, trust in me, let go of whatever you're holding on to and depend on me. Trust me. That's what he is saying. And do you know what the Bible calls this? The Bible calls this repentance. Repentance is turning away from whatever it is that we think will heal us or save us or change us and to turn to Jesus by putting the full weight of our trust on Christ. This is not a call to get up and to work harder. It is a call to get up and to rest in Jesus, which leads to the third point. You have to rest in Jesus to be healed. Notice at the end of verse 9, it says, Now that day was the Sabbath. Why is that significant? Because there's several stories in the Gospels where Jesus is doing something on the Sabbath and he creates this, this uh, conflict that he has with the religious leaders. So what is the Sabbath and why is this so significant? God created the Sabbath for our own good so that we would remember who he is and what he has done. If you go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 2, when God had finished his work of creating on the sixth day, on the seventh day he rested and he called that day the Sabbath. And he calls us into that rest. Now, it's important that you understand that God did not rest because he was tired. He rested because he was finished creating. That's why he rested. God never stopped working. Even on the Sabbath, God continued to sustain all that he created by the word of his power. He was upholding all things by the word of his power. God always works. He never sleeps and he never slumbers. He never takes a break. He's always fully engaged, working at all times. And yet he rested when he finished his creating work and he called it very good and he calls us into that. And this is what he's doing in a similar way in this story. You see, the narrative of the creation story, we see God creating out of creation and rest. But the religious leaders can't see that. They couldn't adjust their eyes. And because their eyes were not adjusted, they completely missed what was going on. They see what Jesus is doing, but they really do not see who Jesus is. You see, God commanded the Jews to observe the Sabbath in order to rest from all their normal activities. So that they would remember who God is and what he has done. So that they would put their confidence in God, in God's work, and not in their own work. The Sabbath is about God still working when we are not. He is working in our lives when we can't. He is working in our lives when we won't. 
This man could not heal himself. He could not save himself. He could not change himself. And neither can we. That's the point of the Sabbath. It's to stop our work and remember that we can do no work to save ourselves. Only God can do that. It is so that we will stop trusting in our own work to make us whole and to make us righteous and to bring about healing and to look to Jesus, to trust in Jesus and His work for those things. But the religious leaders completely missed this point because of their spiritual blindness and because they were spiritually paralyzed. They were so consumed with observing the Sabbath that they completely missed the point of the Sabbath that God created. They were strict in their observance of the Sabbath and they found their own righteousness in their ability to keep those things. Their pool of healing was their religious observance. It was their religious practices. It was their religious works. They were not trusting in God and His work. They're trusting in themselves and their own work to obey God. In fact, they had taken the Sabbath observance so seriously that they created 39 specific laws around the Sabbath on what you can and cannot do. And under each one of those 39 laws were bullet points on how this is to be worked out. It's crazy if you go and read some of these things. They worked so hard to not work that they missed the whole point of the Sabbath. And yet we do the same thing. We do the same thing with our Bible readings and our prayers and our church attendance and whatever it may be. We take those means of grace, these gifts of God to us in order that we might be invited in and to rest in Him. And somehow we turn these things into works righteousness. And we begin to believe that these are the things that make us righteous before God. And that our efforts is what makes us loved by God and accepted by God. Instead of seeing these things as gifts given to us that we get to enter into because we're already loved, because we're already accepted, because we're already righteous in Christ. And so like the Jews, what was meant to be a day of rest becomes a day of greater work in order to earn our righteousness. And this is how it always works. Whatever you put your confidence in for your own righteousness or for your own identity or security, that will be the thing that you trust in the most. That will be the thing that you stand up for the most strongly. And that will be the thing that you feel like you cannot live without if it is taken away. So what is that for you? What is that? You see, these religious leaders were so consumed with their own righteousness through their observance of keeping the Sabbath that on the Sabbath, a day that was meant for rest and healing, they couldn't even see God working among them. And I wonder if sometimes... We become so focused on trying to make ourselves right and make ourselves righteous and approved and accepted by others that when God is at work, we completely miss it because we're too consumed with ourselves and too consumed with our own works. Notice verse 16 and 17. This is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them and he says, my father, now, I want you to notice here, pick up a nuance. When Jesus refers to my father instead of our father, he's declaring himself to be the son of God. That's what he's doing. So he says, my father is working until now. It's a reference to the Sabbath, that even at the Sabbath, God himself still works, even though we're invited not to. So he says, my father is working until now, and I am working. So what is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying, I am the one through whom the world was created. 
I am the one who rested on the seventh day when I was finished creating all that there is. I am the one who continues to work even to this moment. Jesus in this moment is making himself equal with God because he is God. He is God in the flesh who has stepped into our mess in order to bring about healing for us. And the Jews could not see this. Which is why in verse 18, they were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, the rules of the Sabbath, but he was even calling him his own father, or God his own father, making himself equal with God. See, this is the entire point of the passage. That we need someone to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And that is the point of the Sabbath. That God does the work and we rest in his work. That's the point. God does the work and we rest in his work. And his work is very good. So we do not need to add to it and we don't need to try to make it better. But the Jews could not do this because they were resting in their own work and keeping the laws. And their works were never good enough so they never could rest. But this man realized that he had no works to look to. And it wasn't because he was smart enough. And it wasn't because he figured it out. No, not at all. It was because Jesus sought him out. Jesus sought him out. Jesus did the work. Jesus made him aware of his need. Jesus did the healing. Jesus told him what to do. And this man experienced Sabbath because Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, was at work. So how about you? Do you know that you're sick? Do you want to be well? Have you found rest in Jesus' work. Is his work good enough? Is Jesus good enough? Do you trust in his righteousness to make you acceptable to God and bring about wholeness in your life? Or are you still looking to your own efforts and your own work in these ways? Are you resting? Are you being healed? You see, Jesus came to live the perfect life for you and for me, to obey the demands of the law perfectly so that we could rest in his work and be made acceptable to God. He willingly died on the cross for our sin, taking our sickness and our brokenness and our disease so that by his wounds we might be healed. And he rose from the grave victoriously over sickness, sin, and death so that he could be for us our ultimate cure. That is who Jesus is and that is what he has done. Which is why I love this hymn that we sing around here often, Rock of Ages. Listen to the lyrics. Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flow be for me a double cure. Save from wrath and make thee pure. Nothing, not the labor of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. Should my passion never fade? Should my efforts all be weighed? All for sin they could not atone. You must save, and you alone. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress. Helpless I look to thee for grace. Wretched to the fount I fly. Wash me, Savior, lest I die. So what is your pool that you run to? If you will, do you know that you're sick? Do you want to get well? Will you turn to Jesus for that? Charles Haddon Spurgeon, you can see the quote in your bulletin. He once said this. He said, do not despair, dear dear heart, but come to the Lord with all of your jagged wounds, your black bruises, and your running sores. He alone can heal, and he delights to do it. 
So tell him of your sickness. Tell him of your need for healing. Tell him of your brokenness. Tell him of your pain. Tell him because it's not too big for him. It's not too scary for him. It's not too much for him. He loves you. He wants to heal you. He wants to make you new. So go to him and rest in his work and not your own. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning. And we do not know or understand the half of what we need. But you do. You see our sickness. You see our wounds. You see our brokenness. You see us. And so we say, like the psalmist says, search us and know us. See that if there is any wicked way in us. And then cleanse us and heal us and forgive us. Jesus, we want to enter into the rest that you call us into. Would you help us to trust you in that? Would you help us to be honest with our own brokenness? And to rest in the work that you have done for us. Help us to see what you want us to see in this text here. And to respond by the power of the Spirit in the ways that you want us to respond. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.